listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again for episode 321. So, 321, we're getting up there. The other thing that's getting up there is we're now way past our 2 million listeners, which we just hit last episode. So, this is really cool. Thanks to each and every one of y'all. Speaking of thank you, if you want us to leave a review, we forgot to mention the last show. It's very easy. Go in the show notes, click on the link, lovethepodcast.com, OGTW. allows you to leave us a review <laughs> like this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a one-star review, <laughs> and the title is Insane. <laughs> She says, it felt like being hit in the head over and over again. I can arrange that. This is some Jane Dangerous. (laughs) So Jane Dangerous left us a one-star review saying it felt like being hit in the head over and over again. (laughs) Now, what you don't know, Paige, Uh is I happen to see, because we use a tool like lovethepodcast.com, I just saw that Jane Dangerous also left our geopolitical show hosted by Jordan Driscoll a five-star review. Interesting. She loved his show. Well, as you should. Well, in her review for Jordan's show, she talks about how she found the show accidentally looking for a podcast on fossils and that all of our shows were just propaganda over and over again, except for the geopolitical. (laughs) So Jane Dangerous, Uh, number one, thank you for leaving both those reviews sincerely. Number two, if it feels like hitting your head over and over again, listen to Oil & Gas this week, don't listen. Yeah. I mean, it's that simple. But this is the first one-star review that we've gotten that I can remember. Well, I know we've gotten some. I don't remember any. Before my time, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And Jane, I know that you're thinking this is all propaganda for the industry, but unfortunately, you're one person that thinks that, and we have over 2 million people that don't agree with you. (laughs) So booyah. (laughs) (laughs) And you got to look that one up, Jane Dangerous. (laughs) Oh, so anyway, it's First Friday Q&A. So let's get into the questions. So, of course, as always, Ludwig has written in, California is going crazy. So why is Chevron still in a place where they are badly treated? Because Chevron had hope that things would change, Ludwig, and now they've come to their senses and realize that things will never change. So they're moving. They bought a huge tract of land here in Houston. Most of their people have already been moved to Houston over the last couple of years. Their enormous corporate campus, which is beautiful in San Ramon, they are selling part of it and donating part of it. Oh, that's cool. Who are they donating it to? Please, I hope it's not donating to anything to do with the homeless, which is not. And Chevron, I know I'm kind of just joking because the homeless problem is so bad. Yeah, It's to the arts and humanity. I don't remember what it was, but I just thought it was a great thing to do. So, Ludwig, they finally have thrown in the towel, and they're moving their corporate headquarters out of San Ramon, California, here to Houston, where they will be treated much better than they are in California. Much more better. Much more better. All right. The next one. Well, this is something I want to talk about if you're okay with this. Okay. All right. This is Michael. Uh, Michael wrote in to me, I love the show, but cautious of the stats you throw out. In the most recent show of All I Guess This Week, you said the Permian is at 12.9 million barrels per day. Horribly wrong. Maybe too much vino and vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I threw that number out in the median and was made it look like a dunst and had to sit in the corner and not allowed to talk. I'll still listen to the show, but it will be a trust but verify relationship here on out. 
keep on keeping on. So, Michael, number one, I'm sorry I made you look bad. It was my mistake. By now, you figure out the permanent output is actually around 5.8 million barrels per day, and the U.S. output total is 12.9 million barrels a day. I just got that confused in my head while I was going through that. So I want to correct that, bring it to the audience's attention that on that show, when I said the Permian is producing 12.9 million barrels per day, I was absolutely wrong. And it's actually, that number should be 5.8 million barrels a day. If I say something wrong in this show and your team makes you sit in a corner and look bad, that's really kind of wrong. People make mistakes. And I'm always the first one to come in and say, hey, I made a mistake. So, Michael, once again, I'm sorry I embarrassed you. Had Not my intention. I just made a mistake while I was rattling through all the news articles. In your defense, Mark, you're a human. If you are relying on this show to throw out stats in a meeting and not doing your own research, shame on you. Yeah. Well, I still would like to be as I know. Accurate I as get that. Possible. But that's a little dramatic. It's a little dramatic, in my opinion. All right. Next up, HK Landry. Ooh. HK writes in a good bit. Yeah, sure does. <laughs> Doomberg has CO2 sequestration going by the way of nuclear energy. No support. I heard air products under Lake Maripas and Kinder Morgan also mentioned sequestration underwater. Why underwater? And is it ever going to play out? Do we know where HK is from? He has to be from Louisiana. Well, it's Landry. Last name's Landry. Well, he's talking about Lake Maripaw. Nobody. Yeah. So HK, a couple of things. The water connection to CO2 question is really important for people to understand. I'm going to try not to get on my high horse here and make this really short. The amount of carbon that's on this planet is finite. It's not variable. And that carbon has to be recycled. And there's several ways that it's recycled, one of which is the making of hydrocarbons from plankton and zooplankton in the world's ocean through the process of photosynthesis. Hydrocarbons are the Earth's natural way to recycle the carbon. Everybody that's listening to this is a carbon being, and that carbon that's in you came from somewhere else. So that carbon, you might have been in a killer whale, might have been in a Tyrannosaurus rex, might have been in a palm tree, might have been in an amoeba. And over millions of years, it gets moved around, and it has to be moved around because it's finite. So carbon dioxide, another way that it's recycled, it's naturally stored in the ocean. A lot of people don't understand this. And it's stored through a basic chemical process. If you understand organic chemistry, as dissolved gas. And over a longer period of time, the zooplankton that makes hydrocarbons, which are diatoms, make these microscopic shells, which they use carbon to manufacture. And as they die, you have these microscopic shells in a constant rain to the ocean floor. In the very deepest parts of the ocean, it mixes with clay, and that becomes carbonite sediments on the seafloor. So about 70% of all the CO2 on this planet is locked up in the ocean floor. Now, that's not what you're asking me, but I wanted to make sure that people understood that the natural carbon recycle process also involves the oceans, and it's a very important part that nobody understands. To answer your question, so this question underwater that you're talking about under Lake Maripaw that Kinder Morgan's looking at is basically using the pressure of the water to help keep that carbon dioxide locked up. It's that simple. It's a very simple physics problem. But I just wanted to also, because that made me think about the oceans, I wanted to bring that part up as well. So is it the way of nuclear energy where people are ignoring it and there's no support? Today, there is 100%. I think in the future, that's going to change. Same way with nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is the best way to make electricity that we know of today. And it's been vilified by Greenpeace in the 70s and people and countries are still scared of it. It needs to come back. And if you look at over time, even though we do some crazy stuff that makes no sense, and my favorite one, HK, I just came back from the dog park today. There's something from a, a natural world point of view that is horribly wrong that when you pick up your dog poop and you put it in a plastic bag and it goes in a landfill. If you think about that from a natural point of view, that is a horrendous thing to do to our yeah. planet to lock up all that nitrogen in a plastic bag that goes to the landfill. 
But at some point, I think that's going to go away. At some point, I think the planet will be much more open to nuclear energy. We'll have a lot more nuclear energy being generated in the same way with carbon capture and sequestration. I think it will quit being ignored and will actually become mainstream. When, HK? I don't know. (laughs) But I think it will happen. Thanks for the question. And thanks for being a a fan of the show. And writing in all the time. And writing in all the time. Great questions. Great questions. Next up, Linda, president at Berkeley Oil and Gas. Thank you for keeping us up to date on oil field news. How do you view the 2024 outlook for U.S. oil field services give rig count drop in 2023? Price of oil, labor shortages, cost. Are we seeing U.S. lease operators waiting to drill given the 2024 elections and continue focus on strengthening their balance sheets? Do you foresee more M&A activity? So, Linda, a lot of this is on my answer or my predictions in November, which is right around the corner from my prediction of 2024. A couple of things. We should be drilling, not just us in the U.S., the whole world should be drilling yeah. now, but we're not for a combination of things. One is which is the high interest rates, but you also touched on a couple other things that's really important. The lack of labor and the cost of parts and pieces outside of inflation. Inflation just made that worse. Are we seeing operators waiting to drill for the elections? That's part of it, especially if you're a larger operator and you want to build some long-term facilities here in the U.S., the political uncertainty. I mean, would you build a refinery right now in the U.S., page? No. No freaking way, right? No. It takes you 10 or 15 years to build it. It's billions of dollars of CapEx. And during that time to build it, all it takes is some politician somewhere to go, we need to stop building refineries. And all of a sudden, you've lost all that money. So that's part of it, too. But I think there's more to it. And I think we're in this perfect storm, which outside of the conflict in the Middle East right now is going to drive all prices over $100 a barrel. And I don't think that drilling is going to pick up until 2025. And I'll talk about my predictions in November for 2024. As far as more M&A activity, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Somebody, Exxon lit the fuse when it bought Pioneer and you yep. can see that just continue. Yeah. Okay. Next one is from Alicia Howard, Project Manager 2 at DrillQuip. Absolutely love the show, guys. Paige, what are the most common reasons for drilling permit applications being denied or delayed? Okay. Now, it's been like seven years since I've filed a permit. In my experience, it varies by jurisdiction. They come back sometimes with, you know, we need additional information, maybe even clarification or errors in whatever data you've provided. States like Louisiana are pretty straightforward and you can get a permit approved in a few days. Whereas like Wyoming requires a binder with like everything minus a DNA sample. And that was just to re-enter and deepen an existing well. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. I'm guessing that if you want to make sure your drilling permit doesn't get denied or delayed, you have somebody who knows what the hell they're doing to well, apply yeah. for them. And you can go to the government website and go, okay, what do you require? Some are better than others with giving that information. Obviously, it's going to take a little longer to get a, a drilling permit for offshore because there are so many other parameters, especially after Macondo happened. We went from a 25-paper permit to 90 pages because of all the additional things that had to be sent in and approved. It varies. Good question, Alicia. Yeah. All right. Next up is from Brad Anderson, HVAC Tech, and he would rather not say where he works. One of my friends turned me on to this podcast, and I've been listening ever since. Right now, I work as an HVAC technician, but I've always been attracted to the oil and gas space. What education, training, or technical skills are required to work in this industry? Brad, I love when you set me up for something this easy. (laughs) (laughs) So your experience as an HVAC technician sets you up 
to come work in the oil and gas industry. You don't need anything else, right? Yeah. We have a huge demand for HVAC for a bunch of reasons. The one you're probably used to is keeping people comfortable. We're here in Texas, and those guys out in the Permian, when they go back to their workforce camp, I'm going to just pat myself on the back for not calling it a man camp. (laughs) (laughs) They all need air conditioning, right? And like any other group facility, like a hotel, those air conditioners go out and they have to be repaired. You get into some of the things like high-performance computing, where the companies like BP and Exxon and Shell don't outsource those data centers because it's so sensitive and it's so specialized. Those data centers need amazing HVAC, not just to keep the temperatures down from all the high-performance computing, but to keep the dust out of the air and everything else. I could go on and on. In the North Sea, they have the opposite problem. The HVAC to keep people from freezing to death and to keep facilities from freezing up with ice. Your HVAC skill sets and experience absolutely qualify you to come work in the industry. I guarantee you, you go to any major service company or any large operator and go look for their facilities group, they'll be looking for HVAC technicians to come work there. So you don't need to do anything else. Now, if you want it to go outside of that and use what you're doing now, but actually go a little bit further, I would spend some time learning about advanced air filtration. It's something that not only is important for the clean centers where the oil and gas industry is doing very sensitive work and literally a speck of dust can mess something up, but also with this direct air capture that Exxon and Oxy are pioneering, where they're pulling carbon dioxide out the air, understanding how that mechanical system works, which is not much different than HVAC. Other than the fact that you're actually pulling carbon dioxide out the air would serve you very well. So, Brad, you're welcome just as you are. Come on in. Come on. Come on, Shaq. All right. Jacqueline Stewart, Marketing Director at John Deere, writes in, Been a listener for years, and you're both doing an amazing job with the podcast. I also love the new Sunday update. I had to laugh after Paige answered the quote-unquote natural question, as that had to be awkward. It actually wasn't. It wasn't terrible. She says, just know that you're not alone, LOL. Here's my question. How can heavy industry companies leverage content marketing and thought leadership to attract new customers? Ooh, that's actually a really good question. Content marketing. So content marketing, if you don't know, is what you're listening to right now, where you generate content, in this case, the podcast, and you do that in a way to help educate the listeners in what the sponsor or the owner of that content does, which hopefully will drive awareness and sales. Content marketing is just now starting to take off in oil and gas. It's been around in other industries for a decade now. My original market research company, Modal Point, used content marketing heavily to drive customers into us. In fact, to this day, if you search for oil and gas sales experts, you'll see Modal Point come up on that first page. The oil and gas industry has a couple of things that it's dealing with. So content marketing can be used to drive new customers. It's not a very hard thing to do. You could pick anything. You could pick mud pumps and you put out some good content on what makes a good mud pump, what are the top 10 reasons mud pumps fail, or what are the three things you need to look for when buying a mud pump, who are the best mud pump companies. And that content, people would find it when they're doing research on mud pumps and they would drive them toward your company. And if you do it the right way, sales will naturally follow. But the bigger thing, I think, is public awareness. We need to put more quality content out there that is not propaganda, that is not politics, that's not emotion, that is facts on the benefits of what the oil and gas industry does. And the content marketing would be the best way to do that to help educate the world on the value that we bring to mankind. We've done a horrible job with that historically, and we're just now starting to touch that. Thought leadership, that is the way that I would spend my marketing dollars to drive new customers. Let's see, she works for John Deere. Thought leadership would be to position John Deere as the expert in X. And in the oil and gas industry, that could be be an expert in building well pads. 
That could be the expert in trenching for pipelines. That could be the expert in making sure that the snow is kept at a reasonable level in areas where the snow gets too thick to work. All of that John Deere could easily do to show their thought leaders in that space, and that would attract new customers. Good question, Jacqueline. Very good question, actually. Yeah, yeah. And welcome to the Top Heavy Club. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect since she said you're not alone that she's probably been a member for a little while. Yeah, fair enough. Paul Morrison, COO at MPG Oil Field Services. Mark and Paige, you are a breath of fresh air in the news space when it comes to reporting on the oil and gas industry. I'm noticing lately that even some of the industry journalists and reporters don't get things correct. I'm also impressed that when you get things wrong... Not only do you admit it, but you correct the error immediately and take full responsibility. What the hell is going on with the modern news agencies? I get they need to sell advertising, but it seems like every single one of the planet is anti-oil and gas, even the conservative ones. What is driving this one-sidedness, or is it just that I'm turning into a grumpy old man? Regardless, love the show. Keep turning it to the right. So, Paul, you may be turned to a grumpy old man, but you're spot on (laughs) in that all news agencies don't portray us in the right light. So you have one half of the news agencies politically that just hate us, think we're destroying the planet. And the other half, quite honestly, doesn't know what we do. So neither one's really a benefit for us. And I don't want to get too deep in this, but a long time ago, if you're old enough to remember, the news was a very trusted resource. It came on, your parents would make you shut up, and you listened to the news to be updated on what was going on in the world. And there were no commercials. This is important. And when those news, those journalists made a mistake, their journalists' integrity would cause them to come back and correct that mistake. They always want to get the facts out there because there was no bias at all. Start with the Iran-Contra affair. CNN figured out that they could sell ads in the news, and that's when everything started to fall apart. And now the news is not unbiased. It is biased by the advertising dollar. And unfortunately, paint the oil and gas industry as evil and destroying the planet and money-hungry and we don't care about the environment drives more eyeballs and those eyeballs then get them to have more advertising dollars spent. So that's what's going on. It's literally dollars, advertising dollars. And you know what's funny about that, Mark? Even the Weather Channel has gotten pretty dramatic. They're all ridiculous. I know. When you watch the Weather Channel and the person is acting like they're getting ready to be blown away by this hurricane and you see people in the background walking like it's normal, well, you know they're (laughs) That was on CNN. Yeah. (laughs) So, Paul, it's there and it's taking unconventional media like us to share the other side of all this, which is what we do. As far as me correcting, it's funny you brought that up because I just really corrected one in this episode. You didn't know that. But it's super important from a journalistic point of view that when I make a mistake, I let people know. I don't have ego involved. I make mistakes. And when I do, the most important thing is to let our audiences like you and everybody else know that I made a mistake since you're not depending on that bad information. I try not to make mistakes, but it happens. Yeah. When I get asked questions, I do as much research as possible because I know that's on our shoulders that we have to provide this information. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Paul. But that's what's going on. I tell you this much. I do a lot of research on podcasting. I have a lot of news sources. Mm-hmm. And the Infinite Dial is one of the ones I really trust. Every year they do a bunch of resources on podcasting. And last year was the first time in U.S. history that more people said they trusted the news from podcasts than the conventional news media. I believe that. And this year, that percentage went up. I think that's a trend. And I think that conventional news companies are actually going to get worse because now they have less people listening and believing in them, which means they're going to have less revenue, which means they need to do more wild stuff to attract advertising yep. dollars. So I think the way they treat us as an industry is going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. But keep listening to us, Paul. <laughs> yes, please. All right. Drew Bicknell, Director of Business Development at Superior Optimization. 
Paige and Mark, I hope you're both doing well. I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to you both each week for the last three years. Keep up the great work. My question is, what is the next big acquisition that we will likely see in the Permian after the Exxon acquisition of Pioneer? You know, Paige, sometimes it's almost kind of creepy, these questions we get I know. in. And audience, people just send them in. And we pick the ones that come on the show. And there's some, you've heard me say this before, that just don't need to be aired, so we don't. But the timing of this one is impeccable because we just talked about this. And I don't know Drew, and he doesn't know us. So, Drew, the next one is Devin and Marathon Watch. And there's going to be a bunch more after that. But really appreciate you being a listener for three years. Thank you for being one of those people that push us over the 2 million listener mark. Yay. You're going to keep bringing that up, aren't you? Because I'm proud. This start off as a grassroots little bitty podcast nobody ever heard of and now we literally own this space and have the entire world listening to us so i just think it's awesome okay enough of that anyway (laughs) (laughs) bridget williams sales manager at 3m Mark and Page, by far, this is the best oil and gas podcast out there. See? I know. I know. (laughs) I really appreciate all the work you put into this. I'm not new to sales, but I am new to selling in the oil and gas space. What role do bids and RFPs play versus direct sales calls and winning in oil and gas clients? Hope to meet you at one of your mixers soon. Hey, Bridget, we have a sales and marketing podcast, too, that you might want to listen to. But fantastic question. So RFPs, requests for a proposal, if you're non-salespeople, don't know what that is. A bid is almost the same thing. A company asks you to bid on something. So Bridget's asking, what role do bids and RFPs play versus direct sales? Direct sales is when somebody like me, a salesperson, calls on you, finds out if I can help you solve a problem, and then starts the sales cycle. For the big CapEx projects that this industry is built upon, RFPs and bids play an enormous role. In fact, 100%. You are not going to get a piece of a new deep water project in the Gulf of Mexico without responding to an RFP or bid. Sorry. And there's a lot of restrictions and rules around that. A lot of times, even if you want to enter, there's certain requirements. A lot of it has to do with your safety metrics. If you don't run a safe operation, the major operators and refiners and midstream companies won't even let you bid on stuff. So it's real important that you have that and you can prove that. So at a big CapEx expenditure point, RFPs and bids play a huge role. Now, you're getting down to smaller stuff and you work for 3M. I know 3M makes all kinds of stuff. I've seen that at OTC. Yeah. When you're looking at like adhesive tapes and single use respirators and work and rubber gloves and all this stuff that 3M makes, that sort of stuff can be sold directly in the field by your reps, calling on the people that are working like out in the Permian. And that's the old game of bringing donuts and beef jerky, showing up at the trailer, finding the company man form a relationship so they can know they can trust you. And then once they know you can trust you and they look forward to that beef jerky and donuts and people that aren't in sales are laughing at me right now. I promise you millions of dollars of sales have been generated by bringing beef jerky and donuts to the company man and trailers out in Midland. Once you build those relationships, your direct sales are a great way to not only continue to grow revenue with those companies, but also if you play your cards right, maybe you're even allowed to help write the RFP. Now, Bridget, from a sales strategy point of view, when you're a sales organization and the client trusts you so much that they have to issue an RFP because of supply chain, but they ask you to help craft it, that's golden. Reach out to me directly, and I will be happy to share with you how to ethically craft that RFP where your company will be the top contender, if not the winner, but the way to do it ethically, not by cheating. So anyway, RFPs and bids play a huge role in large projects. A lot of the smaller stuff is done on an individual basis. The bottom line in this industry, whether it's large or small project, Bridget, is they have to know they can trust you. So if I hire your company, I'm not hiring 3M. I'm hiring Bridget, 
I want to make sure that I know that if something happens, if I lose control of a well, if I have a pipeline blowout, that I can call Bridget at three o'clock in the morning and you'll roll a truck for me. Bottom line. So the trust factor is the most important part in sales in this because of what we do. Great question. Oh, this is a great one. It's from Jesus Ortega, who is a high school student. His question, I started listening when I saw your contest looking for some high school podcasting hosts. And even though I know zero about the oil and gas industry, I am now hooked. How does compensation compare to other industries for similar roles? Are oil and gas jobs lucrative? You want to answer that one? No, you got this. Hey, Zeus, any position that you know of, the oil and gas industry pays more. Oh, Bottom line, librarian. We pay more for librarians than anybody else. We don't have libraries. Oh, yes, we do. Where? You think of all the historic records, the super majors. Keep, oh, that's fair. They yeah. They have librarians that keep track of all that stuff. I think it's called something else, but I don't know. No, it's no, librarian. Really? So when Mark Stansberry did the documentary for Sherwood Forest and BP gave him all those documents from World War II, 1930s and 1940s, he had to get them through their librarian. Oh, I guess it's because I've only worked for small operators that I, I went file clerk. Anyway, hey, please. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oil and gas jobs are very lucrative. And if you don't know what Jesus is talking about, we're running a contest. So we're going to launch a new podcast for young people hosted by a couple of high school kids. I think October 25th is the end date. And if you're a high schooler or you know a high schooler that wants to be a professional podcast with OGGN, and we're going to pay you, buy your equipment, train you. You will be part of the team. All you need to do is you just submit a short video saying why you should be the host. It's due by October 25th. I'll try to make sure we put a link in the show notes to that. So, Jesus, I don't know if this means you're entering. I hope you're entering, but anybody out there that has... This is going to go out by the time after, anyway. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, everybody. You missed it. Maybe we can extend it. I tell you what, if we get a couple of people that hear this and want to submit something, I'll let that come in. Yeah. Because I didn't realize this was going out later. Yeah. So, we'll put a link in the show notes with the details and the rules. It's really simple, but Jesus, I'd love you and your friends to apply. Okay. Ooh, this is mysterious. Merchant of Southampton writes in, Hi, Mark. Hi, Paige. You are of great inspiration. Not that I am asking you to do my homework. Would you be kind to recommend books, articles, peer magazines about the LNG in general? And even better, what is the role of LNG of the merchant Navy or maritime industry? So, Merchant of Southampton, LNG will be a fuel of the future. For several reasons, the biggest one's emissions, but these large ships have to be retrofitted. They have the bunker C or maybe even diesel that they're burning now. Those same internal combustion engines are going to have to be changed out. You can't keep them in there. The fuel tanks have to be changed because LNG is so cold and under so much pressure. All that infrastructure has to be rebuilt in the ships, but it will happen. So it's going to be a fuel of the future, predominantly because of emissions, and it's already starting to happen. Who, as far as books, how many do you want me to rattle off? Handbook of Liquefied Natural Gas, that's a good one. LNG Fuel for the Changing World, non-technical guide, that's another one. Let's see, LNG Levelhead Look at the Liquefied Natural Gas Controversy, that's a good one. LNG Fuel, non-technical guide, another good one. So it just goes on and on. I would Google it and then look for reviews. There's been a big change in the quality of LNG literature out there in, say, the last five years. Before that, the world didn't really see the value of LNG. After coming out of COVID and the shortage in Europe caused what's going on in Russia, the world's now seeing the value. So you see much more research being done. And that research then spawns non-technical books to make it easy to understand the business of LNG. There's also a bunch of really good YouTube channels out there. So I would check all that stuff out. And hopefully that helps you. All right. Next one is from Dallas, who is a finance student and a corporate development junior analyst at Evergen Infrastructure Corp. 
Hey, Mark and Paige, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the RNG industry, especially regarding its long-term sustainability. I'm a big fan of your podcast and your insights into the oil and gas industry. Thanks. All right, Dallas, two answers to that. RNG, which is renewable natural gas, is here, and it's going to be here to stay, and it's going to be driven by the demand for ESG metrics and for emissions. Now, on the surface, renewable natural gas seems like it's better for the planet because it releases less carbon when you burn it. Let me tell you where renewable natural gas comes from. If you ever walked by a landfill and you smell that stinky smell, that is methane. Methane is a natural part of the decomposition process, right? right? It's one carbon atom, so it's methane. If it had two, it's ethane, three would be propane, on and on. So it's methane, very simple gas, very simple molecule, easy to burn, very clean. What's happened is renewable natural gas comes from things like landfills or capturing the methane off animal waste, crops and crop residue, food waste. Basically, anything that's organic, you can put it in a closed system so that it's not vented to the atmosphere, let it rot. And one of the products of the decomposition is methane gas, which is that stinky smell that you can then take and you can use it. Now, is it really better for the environment? Is this biogas? It's not. Because the one thing they don't count is the amount of fertilizer it takes to produce the animals, Mm, which produce the animal waste, the crops, which produce the crop waste, and the food that produces the food waste. And the biggest part of that fertilizer is nitrogen that comes from where? natural gas. So they strip the ammonia out of natural gas, use that to produce the nitrogen to produce the fertilizer. And the fertilizers, one of the things the end product is, is this renewable natural gas. So from an organic chemistry and a true statistical point of view, it's not better for the environment. In fact, some ways it's worse for the environment, When especially if you look at the fresh water that's used. However, it's here to stay. It will continue to be part of our mix. It's causing some really interesting things that you wouldn't think of. I think I talked about this earlier about some of the biogas plants that are using landfills. So even though a lot of that stuff, that landfill required nitrogen fertilizer, which would then make it not as good for the environment. The truth is before biogas was being utilized, all that methane was just vented to the atmosphere. So the fact that we're actually capturing out, if you look at it, is a good thing for the environment. It's the intentional growing of food crops to make renewable natural gas that I don't agree with. Yeah. Regardless of what I think, though, it doesn't matter. The market's there for it because of the ESG yeah. metrics, and it's continue to be part of our mix. So if, Dallas, it looks like you work for a renewable gas platform. If you're asking me if your job's going to be around for a while, yeah, it will be for a very long time. Sweet. All right. Oh, Merchant of Southampton's back. And I don't want to read all of this. So I'm going to go to the question. Have you considered speaking at Solent University and or Southampton University? Now, have we considered, I am in conversations with the Merchant of Southampton, and we may be making a trip to the UK. More to come. All right, cool. On to John Elliott, who is an attorney at his own law firm, it sounds like. I love your show and listen often. Would like to know what you think about the future of permanent reservoir monitoring. I'm a simple layperson, but PRM seems to be a no-brainer. Although it isn't cheap, it is significantly increases the number of barrels that are extracted from offshore wells. Because offshore projects are so expensive, it would seem increase the life of the well through PRM is wise. But few PRM have been awarded in the last five plus years. Do you see a future for PRM? 
So, John Elliott, yes, there's a huge future. Let me back up a little bit. Shell, I believe, was the first company in the North Sea to start using uh, PRM. That's when the term digital oil field was first invented by Shell. And this installation, which Technique FMC built a lot of the plets and manifolds and trees and separation device, was done in the 80s. That's how long this has been around. And it makes sense for extremely expensive and very complex facilities like subsea installations. Where it doesn't make sense up until recently is on land, either conventional reservoirs or unconventional, like the shell plays. However, all the parts and pieces you need to do permanent reservoir monitoring has become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Connectivity is now much more available. Memory has gotten ridiculously cheap. Compute has gotten ridiculously cheap. All the analytics that you need to do has gotten ridiculously cheap. You can do it in the cloud. Uh, you have edge computing, which means that PRM doesn't need to have a big bandwidth pipe to send all the data back, the only the exceptions you can send back. You can see more and more of this on land and in unconventional. So there's a bright, bright future, John, for this. And the data is collected. Mining that data is also another layer of profits. Once enough data is collected, they can do advanced analytics on the data and help not only the existing fields, but they can actually help plan for future fields. So a lot of cool stuff here. Yep. Yep. All right. Final question from Dayton, which actually sent this to you by LinkedIn, it seems. Mark, I really enjoy your podcast, particularly like your most recent Friday Q&A. Thank you for being an advocate for the industry. Various shale gas plays around the country have seen great success. However, some plays that were highly touted in Aubrey McLennan's shale bonanza of the early 2000s did not necessarily take off. Many like the Floyd Chattanooga I don't even know how to say that. Consaga and other shales of Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia became afterthoughts based on the wild successes of those shale plays that we know so well, like the Marcellus and Haynesville. In many cases, large amounts of hydrocarbons were shown to be in place in these plays, yet they haven't ever been fully tapped. In an age of depressed natural prices and financial discipline among operators, what do you think will take to see undeveloped, unconventional resources like the above explored? Easiest answer to that is demand. And it's coming. It's somewhere down the road. And I've said this before, these shell plays are not unique to the U.S. They're all over the world. And naturally, if you're going to invest money to extract hydrocarbons from unconventional shell, you're going to start where you make the most money. And then as that field becomes depleted, you're going to move to the next layer, the next layer, next layer. Each one is going to make a profit for you. And as we go through time, we get better at making profits. Um, that's one of the things that's going on with this Exxon Pioneer acquisition is Exxon believes it now understands the technology well enough to make this type of investment. So all these plays that you just rattled off Dayton will be tapped into. The infrastructure will be built. It will come online. And it's not just here in the U.S. It will happen all over the world. Now, very long-term thinking-wise, like extremely, like hundreds of years, at some point, Earth's population of humans will peak. That's going to be around 8 to 10 billion people. Once that happens, the Earth's population will start to decline of humans. And as that happens, we will need less and less resources. I fully expect during that declining population somewhere in the future, as the world needs less and less resources, that we will hit peak oil demand, but we'll never hit peak oil supply. These basins will be tapped into, plus thousands of other basins you've never even heard of that we don't even know exist yet. Because like I said, that shale geology is all over the world. Good mm -hmm. question. Yep. 
Now what's it time for? This Week in Petroleum History. <laughs> I love This Week in Petroleum History. A couple of things. Let's start. First, long-distance high-pressure U.S. natural gas pipe went in production during the Great Depression, Lincoln, Texas, to consumers in Chicago. That was A.O. Smith Corporation developed the thin wall pipeline technology to make this happen. This is a $75 million project, which in today's cost would be billions of dollars. And it worked. used 24-inch steel pipes to send 209 tons of natural gas to Chicago. Then Union Oil of California was founded in October of 1890. Ooh. Yeah, Union Oil goes way back, way back, way back, way back. Oh, they're out in Kern County. We've yep. been there. Yep. They were formed as a competitor, Standard Oil. And of course, we know what happened with Standard Oil. And actually, Standard Oil eventually ended up acquiring much later when it was a Standard Oil Union. October 17th, Wildcat Well between Aberdeen and Dallas launched a Texas drilling boom. This is one of those gushers. So they drilled less than, let's see, they drilled 3,000 feet. Oil came out under its own pressure at over 1,600 barrels a day. Within 20 months, the company's stock value jumped from $30 a share to $1,200 a share. And this happened in 1917. It was a long time ago. We had more gushers that were drilled, but this was the first one called the Royal Rager. October 1973, OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, implemented what they called oil diplomacy, which prohibited any nation that supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War from buying the cartel's oil. I remember these days, long lines to get gasoline. The gasoline was rationed, only a few gallons of gasoline at a time. This spurred the investment in automobile technology because up until then, nobody cared what the gas mileage was because gasoline was 20 or 30 cents a gallon. And then it quickly went over to a buck and a half a gallon during that time. October 18th, a reenactment that changed Oklahoma's history in 2008. They built that replica Derrick at Discovery Park in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which you and I have both seen. Yep. That Derrick. So that was really cool that that was built. And then 1990, October 19th, 1990, first emergency use of Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is after the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein. The first presidential mandate emergency use of Strategic Petroleum Reserve was authorized by George H.W. Bush, who ordered the sale of 5 million barrels to demonstrate the readiness of the system under real-life conditions. Now, President Ford was the one that established the SPR in 1975 as a protection against severe supply interruptions. Unfortunately, today, our strategic petroleum reserve is lower than it's been in almost forever. Scary times to not have enough fuel. Especially given the... What's going on. And then we'll end this one with October 1921, first natural gas well in New Mexico. New Mexico's gas industry began when Aztec all syndicate state number one well-found gas reserves about 50 miles northeast of Farmington in San Juan County. Listen to this. The drilling crew used a trim tree trunk with a two-inch pipe and shutoff valve to control the well. Huh. So instead of having a wellhead, they use the weight of this tree trunk. <laughs> I'm telling you guys. <laughs> I well would love to see that. Roughnecks are some inventive people. I would love to see that too. So that's our week in petroleum history. I'll tell you what's not history is how our newsletters are killing it. You've heard me say it before. Just go to OGGN.com, hit on the upper right where it says newsletter, sign up for both of them. Which, by the way, you heard somebody write in about Paige and her little bit of embarrassing moment about being natural. If you want to know what that question was about, it was in one of the past Sunday updates. Weekly rig count. Where are we? As of October 20th, we are up to at 624 in the United States. Canada's up 5, 198, down 12 internationally at 940. 
Yep. Go join the LinkedIn page. I'm not saying anything else about that. First Friday Q&A, which is what you just listened to. If you want to leave a question, two places to do it, go to OGGN.com, OnlyGasThisWeek.com. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I, but to educate the audience. If you'd like myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, to do a keynote, to do a live podcast, we have a bunch of that going on. Reach out. Happy to share the details. Ready to get out of your page? Yep. I'm hungry. Yep. Remember, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.